I love weddings. And uh, that's good for my line of work. Um, they're so much fun. Since I've been at this church, uh, I've done two weddings. Um, one was in South Louisiana, which is fun. Uh, Amelie and Jeremy and Amelie's family, they know how to have a good time. Uh, the other was Russell and Kelly. And um, while, while Kelly's family knows how to go, have a good time, Russell brought all these Russian people over. <laughs> and there was this kicky thing and this shouty thing. And I don't know if y'all know this, but there's this Russian tradition that at some point somebody can yell out in, Gorka, which... Don't. Which means at the reception, which means they kiss and then the whole room counts to see how long they kiss. And this happens all through the reception. And, um, and they're, they're going for the, the big count, so I guess you have to pace yourself and plan that it all happens at the right point. Gorka! <laughs> so much fun. There's celebration, there's food and drink and music and there's joy and there's laughter. And then too often in our society, there's tragedy. So many marriages that begin in joy and beauty and celebration, we all know that too frequently they end up in hatred and fighting. How many marriages start with an air of excitement, a sense of anticipation, but end up in blank indifference? How many husbands begin with passion and delight but eventually find their wife distasteful? How many wives begin with a respect for their husband but in the end can only loathe him? No one starts out a marriage hoping for this, right? Nobody goes into a marriage, all right, pain, suffering, hatred, fighting, divorce. So why does it happen? I mean, nobody starts with that plan, but that's what actually happens too frequently. Why do so many marriages in our society end in hatred or indifference? Well, as all of you know, that's a complicated question. There's a lot of reasons. We're complicated people. We're all individuals. We're all unique. There are lots of ways to destroy a marriage. This morning is the fourth sermon in a series on the subject of sex, and the particular issue for this morning, as you might have guessed, is adultery. Being married and having sex with someone else, or not being married and having sex with someone who is married. It's been a part of our world for a long time. It's one of the ways marriages are destroyed. Now, why do we keep doing this? Why do... All the data shows how painful this can be to a marriage. I know there are exceptions, but all the data shows that this can be a radically destructive act. And yet, it happens. We do this. Why? Why is adultery such a temptation in face of all the evidence of what it could do to a marriage? Well, again, obviously, we are complex. Life is complex. We are unique. Every person, every situation is unique. But let me just give two reasons of the many that adultery is so tempting. First of all, it's fun. Unmarried sex is fun. 
Nobody goes into an affair saying, oh, this will be awful. I don't want to do that. No, unmarried sex is fun. And the Bible is very honest about this. Listen to this verse right from the middle of the Bible, a part of the Bible called Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 9 verse 17. It's talking about adultery. And it says simply but beautifully, stolen water is sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Now that's a fact of reality. There's... This scene in a, there's a TV show right now, Breaking Bad, and early in one of the episodes, he and his wife had a, have um, a sexual encounter, husband and wife, at a moment when it's um, kind of uh, risque. And afterwards, his wife is commenting on how wonderful it was, and he says, you know why? Because what we just did was illegal. It was in a car, in a public place. He says to her, that's what made this so much fun, that it was illegal, that it was illicit, that it was somehow getting away with something. Having sex with someone you're not married to can be thrilling and exciting. It's charged with the uncertainty and and, and unknown. It, it, It doesn't take a wedding to make great sex. Unmarried sex can be fantastic. It can be safe. It can be comfortable. It can be thrilling. In fact, for many people, their sex life outside of marriage is better than their sex life in marriage. When you're not married, sex, it can be dramatic. Sometimes it's dramatic because it's bound up with the thrill of the chase. This this is the drama of the college hookup. You get all gussied up and you go to a party and flirting is exciting. And knowing someone finds you attractive feels good. And not knowing the outcome, will he or won't he, does she or doesn't she... This is thrilling stuff. In fact, this might be the single most significant way that married sex is different from unmarried sex. Married sex is safe. It's stable. It's predictable. It's routine. It's ritualized. That's the insight from Proverbs. It is the stolen nature of the water that makes the water sweet. It is the secret eating of the bread that makes it so pleasant. It is not uncommon for married couples to complain about the difference between the exhilarating sex they had before marriage and the routine sex they're having as a husband and a wife. Just look at the cover of the magazines in the checkout line. They're filled with advice for what? Bringing excitement and thrill and spontaneity into the workaday sexual routines of married couples. Married sex is a given. It's ordinary. It is marked by ritual. It's established. It's governed by vows. But the sex of an affair, it's based on desire. And it's often charged with exhilaration. And that's tempting, especially in a society that has come to believe sex that is great is sex that is exciting. Lauren Winner is a historian. 
an author, a lecturer. She's a professor at Duke. She wrote a great book about sex. I recommend it highly to those who are married and the unmarried, to college students, to teenagers. I thoroughly recommend this book. The title of it is Real Sex. The subtitle is The Naked Truth About Chastity. In this book, she deals with the issue I'm talking about. And listen to what she said. Says, there is nothing inherently wrong with married couples fostering romance. There's nothing wrong with lingerie or candles. The problem comes before that. It comes in a set of premarital sexual experiences that foster the expectation that sex will be constantly exciting, that it will be thrilling the way instability is always thrilling. The way, for example, walking on a rope over a gorge can be thrilling. The problem comes when we learn to define excitement in terms of instability. To connect sexuality and desire with that instability instead of learning to find in the stable, daily, and yes, occasionally dull rhythms of marriage, healthy sex. So one reason adultery is so tempting is because it can be so much fun. Now a second reason is that marriage can be so much hard work. Think about Adam and Eve before the fall. Before they rebelled and ate the fruit from the only tree. You may eat fruit from any tree in the garden, but just one. Don't. And so that one is what they wanted, what they desired, and what they ate. Before they did that, the the last verse describing them. The man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. Adam and Eve, naked, exposed to God, exposed to one another, and yet no shame. And then they sin. They rebel. It's the fall. And things are radically different. Genesis chapter 3 verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They recognized they are naked. Now, it doesn't say that they were ashamed. It just says that they recognized their nakedness. But throughout the Bible, because this verse I just read, the eyes were open and they recognized it. This is a a, a line in the middle of a book. There's context. And throughout the Bible, shame and nakedness are closely linked Now, we're not going to go into the psychology of that. And no, don't read some weird modern American idea into it that Christians are uncomfortable with nudity. Just look at the history of Christian art. There's more nudity in it. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. But nakedness and shame do have a link throughout the Bible. So, when it says the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked, it is as good as saying they suddenly were ashamed. Besides, if you read Genesis chapter 3, they act in all the telltale ways of humiliated people. They're fearful. They hide. They hide from God. They lash out at each other. They blame each other. Adam throws Eve under the bus. It's a remarkable transformation. The state of Adam and Eve's relationship after they got married is awful. 
sin brought shame and shame brought fear and fear brought isolation and shame means exposure and Adam reacts to his exposure how? By attacking his wife. Instead of being one flesh, they go to war. Now it's no coincidence that the first cultural artifact after the fall is clothing. The first piece of culture produced after sin are articles of clothing. Because the shame of exposure, the shame of nakedness is the first experience of fallen humans. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher from the early 19th century, he once wrote that at the end of history, we will all have to take off the mask. We all have to take off our mask and and it will be revealed who we really are. Did you see the uh, musical or the, uh, uh, the Phantom of the Opera or the movie? Remember that lavish scene, the masquerade ball? It's narrated by song. The chorus begins, masquerade, paper faces on parade, masquerade, hide your face so the world will never find you. Kierkegaard was right about the end of history. But he never married. The mask don't wait to come off for the end of history. You see, by its very design, marriage strips away clothing. It removes the fig leaves. At its core, marriage is a return to pre-fall nakedness. I'm talking about a nakedness and an exposure that is far broader than the physical nakedness of the marriage bed. In marriage, you are exposed physically and you are exposed emotionally and socially and every way. Marriage removes the fig leaves, but here's the dilemma. It does not remove the shame. Do you see the conundrum? Sin brings fig, shame covered by fig leaf. Marriage just pulls back the fig leaf and leaves the shame. And so that makes marriage brutally hard. It makes friendship a lot easier than marriage. It makes being a brother or it, you think it is hard. Teenagers, to love your brothers and sisters, just wait. If you get married, you don't know how hard it can be to be kind to someone. Because in a brother-sister relationship, you still have the fig leaf. You can still hide. Now, there are a few things as damaging to a marriage as shame when it is not handled properly. Some of the results of shame are brutal. A man grows up with parents who contemptuously and publicly ask their son why he can't do everything right. And years of this will produce in that boy a rage and an uncontrollable rebellion. And God forbid if his wife ever makes him feel small or stupid, he will beat her. And what about the husband who jokes about his wife's weight at a party? On the drive home, she lashes out. Because of the humiliation. And so stung by his wife's anger, the man withdraws. And they don't talk for a week. And enough of those experiences occur in their marriage and they start to sleep in separate beds. Exposure 
begets shame, which begets anger, which begets withdrawal, which begets estrangement. To be naked and unashamed is so difficult. It can drive you into the arms of another. The sheer difficulty of marriage can make adultery a very tempting offer. Life is complex and there are many reasons for adultery. And please get this, there are worse sins than adultery. It is certainly the case that often married people harm one another in far more profound ways than by sleeping with somebody else. And it is also the case that sex and marriage can often be more unloving and unsafe and unthrilling than sex outside of marriage. But sex outside of marriage is sin. It is a sin against yourself. When you break your vows, your conscience is seared, your integrity is compromised, and the moral fabric of your life is deeply scarred. Sex outside of marriage is a sin against children. If there are children, you are sinning against those children. God who created all things, carved into this universe a in a created order, a way that things should be. And when it comes to children, God's created order is for children to be born in the context of marital faithfulness and to learn from their parents what it is to be faithful. Why? So that they can grow to mirror the faithfulness of the Creator in caring for Him and his world. When this secure fabric of faithfulness is torn by adultery, it is not surprising that children are also cut loose from the created order and purpose for which they were made. And furthermore, adultery is a sin against your spouse. An affair may feel like you are driven by attraction, but But far more fundamental than your attraction to the other person is that you are turning your back on your spouse. You are turning your away from the one to whom you owe faithfulness. But most importantly, adultery is wicked and evil because it is a sin against God. There's a famous story in the Bible of this young man by the name of Joseph. His boss's wife comes on to him. She begs him for sex. And he responds by expressing horror at doing such a thing. Not against his boss. But the horror of doing such a thing against God. Listen to his words from Genesis 39 verse 9. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? The most famous human being in the Bible is King David. In the Bible, David is the primary human example of how to live a moral life. And in his lesser moments, he had an affair. He had an affair with his friend's wife. And then he murdered the friend. 
And when he finally faces up to his guilt, he cries out to God for mercy. And listen to this line from his prayer to God. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, he's not saying it wasn't a sin against myself. He's not saying it wasn't a sin against the children involved. It wasn't a sin against our spouses. He's saying the weight of the evil before God is so big, it eclipses what I've done to my wife and my children and to that woman's husband. Adultery is a sin against God because it breaks the order of creation that God has put into this world. And to break his order is to insult him. And because he's the creator, it is the very definition of evil and wickedness. Evil and wickedness is not compared, is not based on people worse than you. That, if I've ever known it, is a bit of psychological self-preservation. To assign evil to what other people do. Evil and wickedness by its nature is when you transgress God's order that he has carved into reality. It doesn't have anything to do with how you feel about it. You can feel great about jumping off a roof. But logically that does not change the ending. You can feel great about the physics of the universe and still be brought to the reality of the physics of the universe if you defy them. Now this is one of the ways that Christianity makes a claim that not everyone buys into. And I'm not assuming that you buy into it, but I'm a Christian and this is a Christian worship service. So I'm just stating it. There are moral laws to the universe carved into the nature of the universe. And they are just as real as the laws of physics. And it is the breaking of those laws which determines if something is evil and wicked. Now, for those of you who have committed adultery, yes, there are worse sins. But at the end of the day, this does not change the fact that what you have done is wicked and evil. Now, I know that we're not accustomed to this type of speech and you want to shift and it just feels uncomfortable to hear, for some, to hear someone call out people and say that they are wicked and evil. But for those of us who have committed adultery, we need to feel the weight of what we have done. We need to feel the weight of it because it is a real weight. But it doesn't have to be the end of the story. If you have a Bible, track down that passage that CJ read to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look, if you're new to the Bible, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible and you need to use the table of contents, that's okay. Just a warning, when you look in the table of contents, it won't look like, it won't say 1 Corinthians, it'll say I Corinthians. Um, Every group has its own house rules. The house rules for the Bible, they're hard to get used to. Um, It's a Roman numeral. It means the first of the parts of the Bible we call Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There is a law of God which comes to us from beyond us. And it sets before us the order placed in creation by the Creator. And we are held accountable. No matter what your beliefs are. It does not matter if you don't believe that the rate you will fall at is 9.82 seconds per meter squared. It doesn't matter if you believe that or not. Belief doesn't change the laws of physics and belief does not change the laws of morality. Now this is a very strange way for us to, to think. This is the Christian view. That the laws of morality are every bit as solid as the laws of physics. We are accountable no matter what our beliefs to the moral standard. And the moral standard of the universe is objective and it is real and it is external to us. And we all fall far short of it. You just happen to be here on the week I'm preaching on adultery. Now it wouldn't take long for any of us to scratch around and find our own point of failure. And for all of us, we must admit our failures. Failure is never good. It's failure. It's not success. It's failure. But it doesn't have to be the end of the story. Good can come after failure, but the failure itself in moral terms is bad. It's not acceptable. It's wicked. It just doesn't have to be the end of the story. Did you notice verse 11? Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Look, there are a lot of confusing messages going on in our society about Christianity, but Christianity is bold on two fronts. Naming sin as evil and naming grace as possible. No sin, no need for grace. You can't have grace without sin. And you cannot receive grace, the grace of forgiveness, without admitting your sin and owning up to your sin. No matter what sin you have committed, forgiveness is possible. But here's something so important to note. There is a price for forgiveness. One book to the left from 1 Corinthians is the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 1 verse 18, Romans chapter 1 verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Look, the Bible is bold to name it for what it is. Sin 
These things are evil because they are ungodly. They are against God. They break God's moral law. They transgress the created order. Not only is sin real, the effect of sin is real. It incurs the wrath of God. People who say the Old Testament is an angry God and the New Testament is a, is a loving God haven't read either. God is loving in the Old Testament beyond all comprehension. And God is wrathful beyond all comprehension in the New Testament. That's a cliche that people quote from people they heard say it from people, from people, from people. But read right here in the New Testament, the wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness and ungodliness. There is no free sin. If you get away with it freely, it's still out there. It's still affecting the wrath of God. Now listen to another important but complex passage. So much complexity in it. But Romans chapter 3 verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. This is Romans 3.21. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Look, I've already said it. Every sin is wicked and evil. There's worse sins than adultery. There are plenty of people in this room who haven't committed adultery and have done far worse. But I'm applying all of this to the point of this particular subject because that's the subject we're on this week. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and and are justified how? By ignoring what they've done? No, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and get this, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian, what you're hearing me do is explain the inner logic of Christianity. This is at the heart of Orthodox Christianity. No matter what your family tribe is, Mennonite or Baptist or Presbyterian or Lutheran, and to the extent that any little family tribe drifts away from this core teaching, they have drifted away from the heart of the gospel, the heart of what Christianity is. To receive forgiveness from our Creator, we must have faith. But not a generic confidence that things will turn out all right. Too often that's what we mean. Oh, you got to have faith. And what, that just means have some vague generic confidence that it's all going to work out. That's not ever what Christianity means by faith. No, to receive forgiveness you must have faith in Jesus Christ. The Son of God. And if you do, you know what God will do? Unfathomable. He will justify you. Stop trying to self-justify he will justify you. The judge will justify you. The one and only God and creator of all things. If you will have faith in Jesus Christ, he, the one who has your record in his hand, the one, the only one whose judgment matters, he will justify you. He will forgive you. 
He will wash away your sins. He will cleanse you from all of your sins. No human being should ever say it's too late. My life is too spoiled by sin. I've done too much. I'm too bad. What has been done to me is too much. It is too bad. No human being need ever say that. God is a gracious God and a powerful God. He can and he does heal. He's not intimidated by your affair. He's not intimidated by your marriage that has been wrecked by your spouse's affair. He's not scared of it. It doesn't threaten him. He's not saying, oh my goodness, how am I going to deal with this? Look, if you believe there's one God and he made all things, you've already gone way over the limits of what's possible and what's not possible. If he's bigger than the cosmos, he can lift this problem. He can handle this problem. It is possible For two people who have been shamed by sin to be exposed to each other without the whole thing spiraling into anger and resentment and withdrawal and isolation and divorce. But this possibility only comes with the gospel. Fulfilling, joyful, and productive marriage is possible after adultery. If... The husband and the wife, naked and exposed before one another, are at the same time clothed in Christ's righteousness and forgiveness. The first thing made after the fall was clothing. The fig leaf doesn't, does not remove the shame, it only hides it. And yet Jesus Christ, he allowed the fig leaf to be stripped from him. He was stripped. Right at the heart of the gospel story is clothing. Right at the heart of the story of of what Jesus went through is clothing. It is not there as some incidental detail just to fill in background. He was stripped naked. He was beaten. He was ridiculed. He was spit upon. He was nailed to a cross. He was publicly executed. He was clothed in our shame. And yet, he did not open his mouth. He did not lash out. He did not attack the bride who shamed him. He was the true Adam. And this time, he did not throw his wife under the bus. He did not hide in fear. Now, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, he endured the cross despising the shame, not despising the one who shamed him, not despising the one who exposed him. He did not despise you and me on the cross. He endured the cross despising the shame. Why? Why does this verse in Hebrews say it? For the joy set before him, for the joy of giving the one who shamed him forgiveness, for the joy of bringing back to him the one who ridiculed him Reconciliation for the joy of reconciling you and me and adulterers and fornicators and every single person in that list for reconciling us to God. His glory, his beauty, his righteousness. This clothing is the only solution to the shame that drives our life into so many avenues of dysfunction and pain. His clothing, his righteousness, this is the only basis for a peaceful, vigorous, joyful, fulfilling, and fruitful marriage. Janelle and I are rich 
and friendships. And of the five or six couples to whom we have the deepest relationship over the years, half of them have experienced adultery. Three couples we've walked through adultery with. Many more than that. But three who are as close in our life as you could get. One couple did not survive. Two did. And their marriages are remarkable. But even the couple that didn't survive, that got a divorce, and both now are remarried, grace is available. You see, your, your, your brokenness never has to be the end of the story. Not for the couple that had the affair and got over it, and not for the couple that had the affair and went to the divorce court. It never has to stop there. Grace is available The same grace that we all have access to. If you have had an affair, repent. Repent. Your guilt is on you. Even if everything has worked out swimmingly, you are guilty and you need to repent. Now, from my own experience... Walking with people through this. I've not had an affair. Janelle's not having an affair. But from my own experience in walking with people through this. Sometimes. Before you can repent to God. You need to find a trusted friend. A pastor. A priest. And the first step is to say it out loud. To a human being. Just a practical suggestion. I'll never forget the day I'm preaching somewhere and my very close friend who is a pastor comes to me. I'm staying in a hotel room. I'm sitting on one of those beds. He's sitting on the other bed. He gets up and turns out the light and confesses his affair with the secretary. Now that was the the first step in many painful, brutal years. I didn't think either he or his wife would ever survive. And that might be the first step you need is to go to a priest, to go to a pastor, to go to a mature person of the same gender and confess. Christianity is crystal clear about this. There is no forgiveness apart from confession. For those of you who have confessed so many times and you are tired of it, Don't give up. Don't give up. No human being ever has to say, it's over. My wife's favorite saying, as long as there is breath, there is hope. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.